0: Well, the book of Acts tells us about a gathering of the early church that happened in the city of Jerusalem, and this story comes from Acts chapter 15. I would encourage you, you can go ahead and open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that's where we're going to spend our time this morning. If you're a visitor, uh, you may not be familiar with this style of preaching. It's not because it's new, it's just a little bit of a unicorn here in the South, especially in Southern Baptist churches. We preach through books of the Bible here. So you have found this right in the middle of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. The first one, you can go ahead and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But I want to mention a story from the book of Acts. The apostles had converged in Jerusalem. They gathered all the existing elders and apostles of the church at the time. They came to Jerusalem. And the problem was, that had arisen was Paul and Barnabas had begun baptizing all of these Gentile non-Jewish, non-circumcised, non-law-keeping, Old Testament law-keeping people, they had been baptized into the people of God. And the question that arose is, what do we do with all these people? Do they have to become Jews? Do they have to start keeping all the Jewish festivals? Do they have to keep the Old Testament law? And uh, a particularly pertinent question for all of the men in the congregations was, Do we all have to be circumcised? And so they send all of the elders of the church together to settle the matter. And after some debate and back and forth, the Apostle James settles the matter for them all. He says, listen, God has given his Holy Spirit to these uncircumcised Gentiles. God has made them clean. We can do nothing to improve on the purity that God has bestowed on them by giving them the Holy Spirit. No amount of law-keeping or circumcision or any festival celebration is going to make them more pure and clean than they already are by receiving the Holy Spirit. So then James says, let's write the good news in a letter and we'll circulate it to all the churches so that we can calm their spirits and their consciences and they can know that they're walking in full obedience to Jesus and especially, we'll include the uh, the important news that they don't have to get snipped, which I'm sure all the men were super excited about. And uh, here's what they wrote: For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements: that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So the apostles, when they were writing this letter, telling the good news to these Gentile believers, you don't have to be circumcised, you don't have to keep the Old Testament law, you don't even have to celebrate the festivals, the thing that they did feel the need to tell these Gentiles is this. You do need to abstain from sexual immorality. Why did they feel the need to single that one out? This is perhaps even more scandalizing to certain cultures than if they had written, you know what, you do need to get circumcised. To tell these people who are coming out of the world, you don't get to practice your sexuality the way that you did before you came to Jesus. How dare they tell anyone how to control their body? Abstain from sexual immorality. Certainly there is no command the apostles could have given these brand new believers that would more quickly separate them from their old lifestyle than this one, separating Christians from non-Christians, believers from non-believers, those who live in the kingdom of God, from those who live in the kingdom of this world, than for them to say this, Christians, Jew, Gentile alike, we abstain from sexual immorality. And if you found 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul is going to share this command with the church at Thessalonica. This is the scandalizing command that Paul brought to every Gentile church that he planted. Abstain from sexual immorality. So let's stand together as we receive receive not the words of men, but the word of God. beginning in chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you were doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Amen. You may be seen. Paul's command in verse 3, which is the same thing the apostles issued from Jerusalem to all the churches abstain from sexual immorality is a call to exercise the heavenly virtue called chastity. Maybe that sounds a little archaic to you, chastity. But that's basically what that word means. C.S. Lewis once quipped that chastity is the most unpopular of the Christian virtues. If you know anything about the story of St. Augustine, before he became a believer, he lived with a mistress, he had a child out of wedlock, And as he was wrestling with whether he was going to come to the faith, he admits to praying this prayer, O Lord, give me chastity, but not yet. In her book, On Reading Well, Karen Swallow Pryor defines chastity in this way. Chastity is the proper ordering of one good thing, sexual desire, within a hierarchy of other good things. Chastity is the proper ordering of one good thing, sexual desire, within a hierarchy of other good things. And she continues to make an important point. Chastity is not the same as virginity or celibacy. Within Christianity, chastity is something both married and single people are called to. Laura Winters writes that chastity is not The mere absence of sex, but an active conforming of one's body to the ark of the gospel. I think that's a really good way of thinking about it. And as we hear Paul's words this morning, we're going to explore a little bit of what that looks like and what it means. Verses 1 and 2 are indispensable to our understanding of Paul's command in verse 3. Because before you will ever receive any instruction from the Scriptures or from God about how we are supposed to behave ourselves or how we're supposed to have a human ethic of human sexuality, before anyone, especially in today's society, is going to let an archaic book from 2,000 years ago tell us how we ought to live and conduct ourselves and use our bodies in 2019, there is a much more foundational question that we have to answer. Paul addresses that question in verse 1. Let me read it to you again. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Whether I'm going to in- receive Paul's instructions from verses 2 through 8 hinges on this word Ought. Because ought implies obligation. Ought implies necessity. And what is the ought of the believer? Paul says we ought to please God. This is the foundational question we have to answer even about our own personal existence before we even get to the issue of human sexuality. And It's this. Why do I exist? Why do I exist? Is my personal pleasure the ultimate purpose for my existence? Or do I exist first and foremost to please someone else? To put it another way, is my personal happiness the ultimate good in my life? Or, is the happiness of someone or something else even more ultimate than my own personal happiness? Now, if you were to ask this question of anyone outside the four walls of this church, you go out in the world, they will tell you that you will not experience pleasure in your life unless you fight for it, You pursue after it. You guard it. You prioritize your personal happiness is more important than anything else in your life. That's how you need to live. The culture tells us to believe this. I exist first and foremost for my own personal pleasure. The Apostle Paul tells Christians that this is what we believe. I exist First and foremost, for God's pleasure and happiness. This is why I exist to please God. I was created to do what pleases Him, and as I trust Him, and I do what pleases Him, I believe that God, in His grace and mercy, is going to share His eternal pleasure with me by the power of the Spirit. This is foundational. If I'm not willing to resign to this truth, that I do not exist, first and foremost, to bring pleasure to myself, but to bring pleasure to God, of course I'm not going to receive the commandment Paul has for me in verse 3. But, if you and I can agree that I exist first and foremost to please God and to bring Him pleasure, then here you go, Paul says, this is the will of God for you. Here's what's going to make God pleased with you. He's going to be happy with you when you do this. Verse 3. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So if you will agree that you exist to please God, Paul says, I'm telling you what's going to please him. This is what you need to walk in. You need to abstain from sexual immorality. Now this morning, worlds are going to collide in the pulpit this morning. Uh, some of you know that I teach uh, English, high school, high school English, um, by night. You know, pastor by day, English teacher by night. But there, the, the, these roles are colliding this morning. Uh, preacher and English teacher are going to come together because Paul actually, in verses 3 through 8, constructs the perfect paragraph. What, what I, I teach my English students is called a Pepsi paragraph. All right? Pepsi paragraph. So if you're taking notes, you can put these points as sort of an acrostic. P-E-P-S-I. I'm not getting any kickbacks from uh, you know advertising for Pepsi this morning. All right? But it's just a mnemonic device to remember how to write a good paragraph. And for goodness sake, Paul has written the perfect paragraph to persuade us to receive and to obey this command. So if you're taking notes, this is what each of those letters stands for. P, point. E, explanation. P is for proof. S is for signal word. And I is for in other words. And so we're going to follow the logic of Paul's paragraph, his Pepsi paragraph here, as he makes this argument, and the point he's driving home is this. Abstain from sexual immorality. So that's P, number one, point. This is the will of God for you. This is the point. This is what I want you to take home and to do and to obey. Abstain from sexual immorality. Now, the word that Paul uses here is the word pornea. And I think that you know what we have a word in our culture that is directly derived from this pornography. That comes from this word that is translated sexual immorality in the Bible. That's the word. Now, our culture has a different letter of the alphabet for every form of sexual immorality out there. But that's not the way it is in the Bible. The Bible has only two primary arenas of sexual expression. There is one that the Bible calls marriage. And then there's everything else. And the Bible calls that pornea. It's not complicated or complex. The Bible says there's either marriage or pornea. There's sexual union within the covenant of marriage, which pleases God, and then there's all other sexual practice outside of marriage, which displeases God. Now, today's hot-button issue in church after church is that we keep capitulating to the culture in this particular area, and primarily, I think, today in the area of homosexual practice. And I think there's a problem that most Christians are not acknowledging. It's, it's that the Bible doesn't just simply single out homosexual practice and say, that's a sin, you shouldn't do that. The problem is actually that the Bible singles out all sexual practice outside of marriage and says all of this displeases God. It's just one big category together. The Bible is much more expansive than that. All sexual practice outside the ordained covenant of marriage between a man and a woman displeases God. This is why people are so often puzzled when the Bible doesn't speak about homosexual practice that often, which it actually does. But, for the sake of argument, let's say that. Well, it's because it just lumps it together with this whole category called pornea. A boyfriend and girlfriend sleeping together is called pornea. A husband having an affair with his coworker, worker pornea. A young man looking at pornography on his iPhone every night is pornea. A young... Uh, Two women together, two men together, five men, three women. It doesn't matter what it is. If it's outside of covenant marriage, it's called by the Bible pornia. Paul says that what sanctifies us, our sanctification, what sets us apart from the world, is that we do not practice pornea. We practice what we've already said this morning, chastity. We abstain. From sexual immorality. It's not a new problem. Paganism has always been obsessed with human sexuality and sexual immorality. We've already heard this morning from 1 Peter chapter 4, and it strikes us how much it sounds just like what's going on today. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality. Passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to these, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. This is the separation that Paul's talking about. Your sanctification, you do not join the rest of the world in what the rest of the world enjoys doing. Which brings us to E. So Paul lays down the point, And then In good style, good writing style, he then, your second sentence of the paragraph typically is supposed to explain your point. E, explain. So you state your main point. Your next sentence should sort of expound what you mean or rephrase what you mean, which is exactly what Paul does in verse 4. What does he mean by abstain from sexual immorality? Verse 4, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. What sets believers apart from the rest of the world is not that we are no longer tempted to do these things. Christians are tempted in all the same ways we were before we became Christians. Tempted to look at pornography, tempted toward homosexual practice, tempted to fornication and adultery. What is different about us is God has put His Holy Spirit inside of us that allows us to take control of our bodies rather than to be controlled by them. Let me recall again the definition Laura Winter gives us of chastity. Chastity is not merely the absence of sex, but an active conforming of one's body to the ark of the gospel. So, the ultimate good for Christians is not this idea of perpetual virginity, but of conforming our bodies with all its hormones and urges and desires and physical passions to the design. And the will and the pleasure of God. So, brother and sister, this is a question we have to ask ourselves. Do I have control over my body or does my body have control over me? Our bodies are flowing with all kinds of hormones and chemicals and urges and desires. And on top of that, in our bodies still resides the flesh that Paul talks about. That old man, with all of his passions and pleasures, are we controlled by these things or am I seeking to take hold of them, take possession of them, control my vessel and bring it into obedience and holiness and honor? when we allow those wicked desires to take control of us, when we allow our physical passions to take control of us, we end up bringing dishonor upon our bodies. We do things with our bodies they weren't made to do. The control that Paul is talking about here doesn't mean that we're able to prevent those desires from arising from within us. We we aren't able to prevent the temptations from happening. It means we prevent our bodies from acting on those desires. It means that we take control of our mind when it begins to wander down a path we know it shouldn't. We take control of our eyes when they see something they shouldn't and want to continue looking. We take control of our hands. We take control of our mouths. You know, one of the most outrageous things that I see today, and it, it's so prolific in the Christian world Christian parents giving one of these to their children. These kids haven't even demonstrated the basic ability to take control of them, their bodies in like showering on a regular basis. Or being able to wake themselves up without mommy or daddy having to come yank the comforter off of them and push them out of bed. I, they're not even mastering like basic level control of the body. And yet we think that we can give them this, unfettered access to the internet and to digital communication. And we think somehow they're going to exercise any matter of control over their eyes or over their fingers, over the things they do with this. Listen, when I was a teenager, we didn't even have smartphones. Guys, are you going to be okay? Teddy, are you going to be okay? Okay. When I was a high schooler, we didn't even have smartphones, and I, as a high school student, lived addicted to pornography my entire four years of high school. Okay? And I'm the pastor. So parents... If you think, if you're fooling yourself into thinking, well, not my child, if you have given them one of these or a tablet or a laptop, you give them unfettered access. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of how often they are engaging in pornea. And you can tell anyone you want. You can go out and you can go tell people, Ronnie's, you go tell them. Your pastor has accountability software on his phone and on his laptop that reports back to my wife every week what I'm looking at and what I'm doing. You know what? That is where true freedom is found, is when you start to take control of your body. It's the best $10 I spend every month. (laughs) Is setting myself free from those passions and desires. Why do I do that? Well, because I don't trust my eyes. I don't trust my fingers. I don't trust my body, and I take control of it, just like Paul is encouraging us to do. Parents, I would encourage you, that's part of your role in the life of your child. As a teenager, as a young child, they do not have, we're seeing it on the front row here, children do not have control over their own bodies. Parents, we've got to help them. We can't just throw them to the wolves. We've got to help put those controls around them. Accountability software. Go look it up. Covenant eyes. It's the best thing you could ever do for your family. We have to take control of our bodies, Paul says. That's the E, the explanation. This brings us to the second P. Any self-respecting paragraph is not just going to make an assertion and expect you to believe it because I say it's true. They're going to provide proof. P is for proof. So after you state your point and you explain your point, then you're going to convince us of the truth of your point by laying out evidence, proof after proof after proof. Why should we abstain from sexual immorality? Verses 4-7, through Paul gives us four proofs. Proof number one, it's a sign that you don't know God. If this is what you're practicing, it's a sign that you don't know God. If you're living in open, unrepentant immorality, It is a mark that you belong to the world and not to God. Listen to verse 5. Not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. The world is characterized by people who are driven around by their passions and by their lusts and their physical desires, not Christians. And when we look at the world, this is par for the course. I, I'm not even going to pretend to understand why this is even a thing, but I saw in the news this week that there was a dust-up about The Bachelorette. And people were upset about something about immorality there, and you know, she thought this thing, and one of the other contestants thought that. And I'm just thinking, why on earth would we expect a show like The Bachelorette to be a paramount of morality in any sphere of life? No, these shows are just a reflection of what everyone in the culture believes. Right? But here's the thing, if you look at your life, and what you're watching on The Bachelor or The Bachelorette, a show which apparently has an episode called The Fantasy Suite, where they just go in and take one another for a test drive before the final, I mean, if this is what your life looks like, chances are you do not know God. And I'm, I'm not trying to be condemnatory, that's just what Paul is saying, this is what the world looks like, and if that's what you look like, You need to have a come-to-Jesus moment before we even start talking about this stuff. You don't know God. Paul says, we all know what the world is like. This is what the world looks like, and this ain't it. This isn't what we do. We who know God are not led about by our passions and pleasures like this. Proof number two. Paul says, it transgresses your brother. Verse six. That uh, he says, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. So when we engage in this kind of behavior, in this kind of sexual immorality, this kind of practice, what we're doing is we are saying this person exists solely to bring me personal pleasure. That's why they exist. Is to make me happy and to serve me. When a young man looks at images online, he is treating those women as though they are his sex slaves. When you sleep with your boyfriend, not only do you defile yourself, you are defiling your partner in that act. Paul says you transgress your brother, you transgress your sister, you bring your sin into their body. When you practice homosexuality, you're using another man, another woman in ways that they were never intended to be used. And it comes back to the foundational question we had at the very beginning. Does this universe exist for my pleasure? Do the people in my life exist to make me happy? When we engage in this kind of behavior implicitly, whether we'll say it out loud or not, our answer is yes. These people exist to bring me personal pleasure, and that's it. Brothers and sisters, we know that's not true. We know that every man, every woman is made in the image of God and was made to please God just like we were. So we can't do this. Our job isn't to use others for our pleasure, but actually to lay aside our immediate personal happiness by sacrificing ourselves to love them and to encourage them with us to join in pleasing God together. Proof number three. It will be avenged. All immorality will one day be called to account. Look at the second half of verse six. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. All right, Teddy. I don't mean avenger in the superhero sense. Right, buddy? he's not listening (laughs) what is an avenger avenger is someone who makes a wrong righted it's someone who, who witnesses some injustice and corrects it so when we're engaging in this kind of behavior we're not just having harmless fun we're not simply having a romp we're not just engaging in a little bit of naughtiness we are transgressing the design of the almighty creator God God has made all people to work and to will according to his good pleasure, Paul tells the Philippians. And when we displease him by directly disobeying him and establishing ourselves as kings and saying, "Nah, God, I don't exist to bring you pleasure. In fact, the whole world exists to serve me and to do what makes me happy. You better believe that that is going to be held accountable on the day of judgment. A day of reckoning is coming. All the things that have been done in the darkness will be brought into the light of day. Paul says all these things. Friends, I want to encourage you in this moment to run to Jesus. I don't know what you've done in your darkest moments. You may have done something this weekend that you know displeases the Lord. If you are addicted to pornography or you have been practicing homosexuality or you've been having an affair, the thing that I call you to is to step into the light today. Do not let Satan keep you in darkness. The Apostle John says if we say we walk in darkness, but we continue to practice sin, we're lying to ourselves if we think we have fellowship with God can't have fellowship with God and walk in darkness. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is purity for you. God can put His Spirit into you and wash away and forgive everything that you've done. But you've got to tell the truth first. You've got to confess the truth about yourself. You've got to step into the light, out of the darkness, There is holiness for you at the cross. God has sent His Son so that every sinner who kneels down and tells the truth about what they've done and trusts that even though they don't deserve it, Jesus, for some reason, died and shed His blood to wash all that away. And on top of that, to give us His Holy Spirit so that now we can walk in obedience and do what pleases God, i.e. abstain from sexual immorality. We actually believe that's possible. This is the good news for all who will repent and believe. Which brings us finally to Paul's fourth proof. Proof number four, it's defiling. Sexual immorality makes us impure. Verse seven, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Listen to me, the thing that Satan wants you to do is to remain in darkness. And to keep this sin hidden from the rest of the people of God. And to not tell anyone about it. Because Satan hates holiness. And he is working for your defilement and your ultimate destruction. And he knows that if you reveal this sin to the people of God, holiness is going to pour in. And he doesn't want that for you. And so he's going to tell you in your heart, you can't tell anyone about this. You shouldn't reveal this to anyone, but believe me, this is the place. This is where we should be having these conversations. This is where it should feel safe for men to tell the truth about the temptations they are experiencing and to ask other men and women for help. This is where teens and children should feel the freedom to express physical desires they don't understand. And to say, please help me walk in holiness. I don't understand what my body's telling me. But I need help to be holy. We shouldn't be surprised when members of this church come forward and say, I'm feeling this temptation or I'm experiencing this desire or this thing that I don't want to do, but I'm having a hard time. That's why Paul gave this command, because he knows the church is full of people who are going to struggle with sexual immorality. He knows we're going to face the temptation to pornea in some form or fashion and we need the truth of God's word to strengthen us as the people of God to continue in holiness and not fall back into impurity. We are his holy people together. Holiness happens here in the presence of God's people. Which is why it's so important for us to bring these temptations into the presence of the people of God because we can shine a light and we can Shine away that impurity and we can discover holiness in walking together and not alone. Well, quickly, let's move on to S. This is a short point. S is the signal word. So if you're writing a good paragraph, you've given your point, you've explained it, you've given the proof, you're coming to the conclusion, and you give a signal word that tells your readers, I'm going to wrap this up. I'm about to summarize my point. I'm about to drive this home. I'm going to reiterate my point, and I'm going to be done. So you may summarize with some kind of signal word like obviously, or it follows then, or therefore, to summarize on account of all these things. And here in verse 8, Paul uses a signal word, which is the mac daddy of all signal words. It's the word uh You don't have to remember that, but our... our Our translation uses the word therefore, which is, okay, it's an okay. But what it means is, consequently, in view of all of these things, to summarize my entire argument, this is what it all boils down to. And it's signaling to us, Paul is about to get to the heart of the whole argument in verse 8. Which brings us to our last letter, I. In other words... So if you were one of my English students, I would be telling you, your last sentence of the paragraph should restate the main point. Maybe in some poignant way that really drives home the importance of what you've been sharing with us. And Paul does it better than anyone else. Verse 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Paul says, when it comes down to the matter of how we practice our God-given sexuality, it is not a matter of personal preference. It is not every man for himself. To choose to disregard this simple command of abstain from sexual immorality is to disregard not the command of man, but of God himself. Many progressive Christians will argue that the Apostle Paul's instructions regarding human sexuality throughout his letters are really just culturally confined. There's something that was important 2,000 years ago, but Paul really couldn't have predicted or anticipated what we're dealing with today. Things are so much different. Their are instructions for a different age, a different culture, a different time. We don't have to follow these instructions anymore, but, you know, Paul doesn't seem... To feel that way about what he has to share. I can't really think of a stronger way he could have put it. Whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God. He says, let me drive home the point. This is what it comes down to. Will you submit to God's will for your life, or won't you? And as we receive this word this morning, I wonder whether these instructions feel like bondage to you or freedom. I mentioned at the beginning of the service how the apostles sent this circular letter to all the churches giving instructions. And they basically said, well, we don't have a lot to say. You guys are basically doing everything the right way. We don't have anything to add except this. You need to abstain from sexual immorality. How did they respond to this command. Let me read to you, Acts 15. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, that's Paul and Barnabas, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter, and when they had read it, they rejoiced <laughs> because of its encouragement. I was leading the uh, Newberry College ladies' soccer team through the letter of 1 Thessalonians, and I got to this chapter, and I pulled into the parking lot, I, oh boy, I don't know how I'm going to deal with this. You know, with college students. I finished that Bible study, and one of those young ladies, with a beaming face, she says, I feel empowered to not have sex. And I was like, amen. That's the right way to respond to this. This is encouraging. I feel empowered. The Holy Spirit is confirming with what he's written in his word that this is what God wants for me, and I want this too. I want to please God with my life. That's the way we should feel. Not guilt, not shame, but a renewed resolve to seek the Lord for forgiveness if we need it and to continue to pursue chastity with the people of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it has been a hard word this morning. I pray, though, it's been an encouraging word. I pray the people of God will sense such a desire simply to please you God with everything that they are and that they do I pray that we would lean on one another as we try to pursue this commandment together God I pray if there is anyone here who is struggling who feels alone I pray they would feel the safety to step into the light among the people of God and that we would rush in with love and support and that we would help them to learn what it means to live a life of holiness which pleases you. In Jesus' name we trust and pray.